Thank you so much for spending this time with me and with each other, especially on a day that might call you to be outside a little bit more. So I do appreciate that. So, yes, to cut to the chase, after almost 30 years as a brother in a Catholic religious order, I left the brotherhood, I left the church, the Catholic church, I left religion. And what I want to tell you today is some of that process. And as I go through the slides, uh, if there is a question about a slide, feel free to raise your hand and ask. We will have time at the end for more comments and questions and discussions. But I know sometimes it's like, but what does that mean? And I'm not going to remember that a half hour from now. So that's the way I am, and I'm projecting that may be true for some of you. Uh, Barbara graciously mentioned the book. I will mention the title of the book and explain that briefly. The book is entitled In the Land of Shiva. First of all, I lived for seven years in two countries, India and Nepal both. So uh, Barbara mentioned someplace that Jim visited these countries. Uh, well, it was a seven-year visit. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, in Hinduism... Shiva is called the destroyer. And at, when I first came into contact with that concept, it was shocking to me. The destroyer. Uh, how can that be a good thing? And of course, if you know anything about Hindu mythology, you have several figures. Uh, Durga. Uh, what's another name for her? But anyway, many names that destroys things. She's got a necklace of skulls. The idea is this that Shiva and his counterparts destroy that which is no longer needed. It is uh, the grand tradition. In the Christian tradition, I'll be using certain Christian references because that's my background. Uh, it's the seed falls into the ground and has to be destroyed, die, in order for the new thing to come to fruition. So basically, that's why I entitled it In the Land of Shiva, because both countries honor that figure, and that is what happened to me. That which had served me in some ways, mostly, for many years, no longer was doing that as I saw it. Okay, so that's where we are. My official name, of course, is James O'Hara. You may address me as Jim. I'm uh, would be happy if you do that because that's just the way usually people do. So, in case you didn't know where Nepal is, now you do. It's that little red spot there. Let me ask this Is there anybody in this room who has been to either India or Nepal? Okay. Well, would it possibly be correct to say that it was. You know, a transformative experience in some ways for you. Would that be true? Yes, some of you are nodding your heads. Yes. A country like India is overwhelming, and I tell people, don't go there for a vacation, but an education. And then I usually recommend that they end up on one of the beaches in South India to decompress before they come back. All right, so I'll be telling this story as we look at slides. There are two stories. 
One is, what was the outer project that I was engaged in? Why did I even go there? And then the other story is the inner, what happened to me uh, during that journey. So next slide, please. As was mentioned, I grew up in Milwaukee, and I went to Catholic grade school. It was taught by nuns. Uh, had a good education. Yes, they were strict, and I have. Uh, I think they were wonderful, wonderful women. And of course, I learned my catechism by heart. I could probably still. <laughs> Why did God make me? God made me to show forth his goodness and share with us his everlasting life in heaven. Or something like that. <laughs> you know, with little kids, early training is very powerful. And I will, again, this is personal theology, so I do not put my views on anybody else. But at this point in life, I would say I got a good education and a thorough brainwashing. <laughs> A thorough brainwashing. Okay, so there's little Jimmy in his first communion outfit. And I was going to be the best little Catholic boy in the world. I can tell you that. And I would go to confession, do all those things. Next slide. I went to a Catholic high school. That's actually a picture of the high school I went to. It was originally a condemned grade school. And the brothers went to Milwaukee and got some funds and fixed it up, and we went to school there. I graduated in a class of 59. At one point, somebody said, Jim, what about thinking about being a brother? My first response was, nah. <laughs> uh, well, maybe, okay, yes, I really wanted to become a brother. Now... A question that might arise is, what's the motivation for that? I can only speak for myself, but I'm also going to make a general projection here on a lot of us who joined religious orders. One of the most powerful motivators, I think, are admirable role models. I think it is the most powerful of all motivations. When you see somebody and you like what they're doing and you respect them and they seem to have a good life, one of the responses is, I want to be like that. And I really feel strongly that role models, um, those that we respect and admire, are one of the greatest motivators. For myself, there was another underlying motivation, which was in one way conscious and another way unconscious. I knew from an early age that I was sexually attracted to other boys, to men. But remember, I was going to be the best little Catholic boy in the world. So I knew uh, I could never have sex because I couldn't have it the way I wanted and I wasn't interested in marriage. That background was going on. When, that was not a conscious, oh, I am not going to get married, therefore I'll become a brother. No, that, that, was, that part was unconscious. I didn't draw those two, uh, didn't connect those two dots consciously, but it was there. Okay, and what did that, look at that guy. What did he know at, at age 15 or 16? You know, the, the, the empty phase, yeah, okay, give me, I'll try it. Okay. 
Pardon? Beginner's mind. Yeah, beginner's mind. But a brainwashed one. <laughs> Beginner in terms of life. Yes. Thank you. Uh, next slide. Okay, can you guess which one is me? <laughs> How'd that get in there? It's a miracle. So, so there we are. And again, the thing about role models being motivators, certainly there were uh, men joining that were not, uh, who, for whom marriage was an option. So I think the overriding goal for most of us was, I want to be like that. And I became, yes, please. Ah, yes. It has two names. One is the Society of Mary. And its more common name is Marianist. Not to be confused with Mary Knowles, or there were many groups dedicated to Mary. Ours was Marianist. The brothers uh, in that group still uh, are working at Reardon High School in San Francisco. So if you've heard of that school, those are the brothers. Thank you. All right, math teacher did all that. Okay, next. All right, midlife crisis. Now, between the ages of 36 and 44, those of you, like Lonnie, who know astrology, there are certain things that come into play that are midlife crises. And even if you don't know astrology, it doesn't matter. You may have experienced that. Anybody experienced a little bit of midlife crisis a few years ago? Okay. <laughs> and remember, the crisis simply means... Stop, think, redirect if necessary. So that I wanted something new and different. So in case you can't read it from the back, teaching math was cool, but I'm ready for a change. I want some spice in my life. Announcement, the brothers are going to India. Volunteers needed. Where's India again? It was an opportunity, and uh, I had wanted, as a brother, that we were starting a new school in Colorado. I volunteered for that. The idea of starting something new just appeals to me very much, so I volunteered to go. And here's what the four of us looked like on the eve of our departure, uh, a rather hirsute group. This was, okay, so 1980, and there were four of us. And the superiors gathered the four volunteers together and said, okay, one of you has to be the leader, the superior, and the other three all turned to me. So I said, well, okay, yes. Uh, I said, one of the conditions, though, that I will take on that leadership role is that we are not going there to convert. India has millions of Catholics. The idea was to go there and to recruit young Indian men to become brothers because they themselves are the best ones to work in the villages and the slums in the city with their own people rather than the foreigners. Our job was to go in and get things started, set up training programs, and then turn it over to them. And in fact, that is what has happened. At the end of this, I'll show you some of the things that the brothers are doing today.
This is how we dressed in India. <laughs> a little more casual. In big cities like Delhi, uh, men, most women wear Western clothes. Now, a lot of women, of course, wear saris, uh, but men almost all wear Western clothes. Now, of course, there are uh, many who, men who wear what's called a lungi. It's a wrap around, a, uh, like a sarong. Okay. All right. When we got there, the Jesuits put us up in their seminary. They didn't have any space, any rooms, so they uh, gave us a classroom, and we lived in this classroom. By the way, for those of you standing in back, there are a few chairs here. You may not want to sit right in front and crane your neck, but just so you know, they're here. Okay. All right, so in January of 18, we landed there. Please, next. Uh, keep, yeah, there are going to be a few blank slides. Uh, that's my brain sometimes. Okay, so then we rented, of course, in the area uh, close to that seminary for our headquarters. We rented some apartments. And, okay, go ahead. Next one. Oh. <laughs> one day I looked out, and... There, an elephant was coming down the street. And when I lived in Kathmandu, an elephant walked down past our house every morning. And one time, one visitor was there, and uh, I was downstairs. He was up on the veranda. And all of a sudden, I heard him screaming, Oh, my God! Oh, my God! I thought he had fallen or something. I rushed up there, and he said, Here's an elephant! <laughs> well, it's funny what you get used to. <laughs> I said, well, of course there's an elephant. It goes by here every day. Okay. It was just what we got used to. And I'm convinced that we are very malleable creatures. We can get used to more than we perhaps think we might get used to. Okay. This is a key slide for me in terms of the inner journey that we're talking about. I'll speak a little bit. and you can, If you can't read it from the back, I'll read these in a moment. For the first time in my life, I was in a situation, in a culture, in a country where the majority of religion was not Christian. Now, if you have, uh, and I'm not saying that you all have Christian backgrounds, I don't know your backgrounds, but there are so many of us who were born here, raised here, we just don't know what it's like to be a religious minority. It was a shock for me. One day, I was traveling around India, and I stopped for whatever. I was getting on these trains in Bombay. It was called Bombay then. And all of a sudden, I realized, this is Christmas. <laughs> it was Christmas Day. It had totally escaped my mind, because while there are many religious uh, public expressions, uh, not so necessarily with Christianity. And that was the eye-opener of all which was this, that I had neighbors who were as convinced about the Quran as I was about the Gospels. And, or the Guru Granth Sahib, that is the scriptures for the Sikhs, you know, the, the men that wear the, the turbans and they have the golden temple in Amritsar. That's theirs. For Hindus, the oldest scriptures are the Vedas. And that's where the truth lies. 
and I thought it would be there. And we all were convinced of it. Absolutely, we had faith. Well, other people get this sooner. (laughs) It finally dawned on me what faith is. It's the brainwashing from early childhood. That's what it is. Because the Muslims across the street were as convinced that Jesus, well, he was cool. He's a prophet. You know, Jesus and Mary are mentioned in the Quran. Uh, he was cool. He was a prophet, second to Muhammad, uh, and he certainly wasn't divine. And absolute will take up the sword for that. Christians have taken up the sword also for the opposite belief. And finally, it dawned on me what faith really was: uh, brainwashing from early on. Okay, next slide. The most poisonous words in the Gospels. Blessed is he who has not seen but believed. Poison to me. If someone else honors this phrase, it's none of my business to judge anybody's beliefs unless they're hurting someone. This comes from, anybody know where the story comes? This isn't of particular, huh? Oh, okay. Thomas? Yes. Okay. If I had a holy card, I'd give you. <laughs> well, I have my business card. <laughs> card for my book. Okay. So, the story of doubting Thomas. Remember, in the Gospels, the story is Jesus has arisen from the dead. He comes to the disciples hanging out in the upper room and he talks to them and they go, oh my God, he's alive. Then Thomas, one of the disciples, is not there. And he comes back later and the other uh, apostles tell him what happened. He said, oh no, I won't believe this. Then next time he's present when Jesus comes into the room and then, oh, now I believe. And in the Gospel of John... uh, it is written that Jesus says these words. Now it's interesting because that story is also in another gospel, but that gospel does not have these words. I am not a scripture scholar, not even a scripture student, but John was the theologian. He was out to make Jesus divine and to shore up belief. His gospel begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. A whole thing to make sure we got the idea that Jesus was divine. This is the only place this appears. And I maintain for myself that when blind faith is made of virtue, it confers absolute power on the religious authority of your choice or of your upbringing or whatever. Okay? Um, let me tell one other quick story. Many gay men and women have left their religious tradition because it is not welcoming. They left their priests and popes and rabbis and ayatollahs and flocked to, guess who? Among others, the Dalai Lama. And this was... I don't know, maybe six, seven, eight years ago, 
he came to Zellerbach Hall on campus and gave some speech. And in it, he made some negative comment about gays. The gays were all upset. Anybody that said that to me, I said, well, you jumped out of the frying pan into a fire. In other words, you substituted one big guru for another big guru, and they will all disappoint you. Why are you taking on now the Dalai Lama as the be-all and end-all? What's the matter with you? Okay. I said it nicely, I think. Okay, let's go forward. So, those last two slides are what's going on inside of me as I move through India, where religion... Uh, you can walk down a lot of streets in this country and you might run into a church or see a crucifix somewhere or uh, maybe an indication of a mosque, something. But in India, it's totally different. You are confronted with religious uh, apparel activity on every street. So in upper left, we have... Uh, Muslims in their particular garb. We have a Sikh. There are Jains with their own special temple. Here, this is a street uh, shrine in New Delhi, downtown New Delhi, where, and there's no issue about um, separation of church and state there. I mean, they officially say that, but if someone wants to put up a Hindu shrine on the public street, they do it, and it, that happens. Of course, lower right-hand corner, you have the sacred emaciated cow. They forage. And, of course, this is Hanuman, the monkey god. And here's a procession down the street. Constantly um, processions. And forget about getting permits. First of all, the Indian bureaucracy would not be able to handle that for the amount of processions that there are. You just step aside and this one goes by. So it is all pervasive. Here is uh, <laughs> notice the Star of David there in the Emperor Humayun's tomb. He was Muslim. And there is that whole thing of the people of the book which I won't go into right now, but a Jewish tradition, uh, Christian, and Muslim. So again, many examples throughout the country. Now, one of the things about Hinduism is, and it's not limited to Hinduism, same thing in Buddhism, I wrote down here, reincarnation. It's another theory, perhaps more quote-unquote elegant than most, that responds to the question, and this is asked in many ways, why do good people suffer? <laughs> Isn't that unfair? Or why is there suffering in the world? Why does evil exist? What's the balance of things? That question in its many forms has driven people to ponder, to join religious groups that like to feel they have an answer for that. And I'll say, I don't know, I don't believe in reincarnation. Why would I take another belief? But I think as a metaphor, uh, it's very interesting. Because remember, we can't describe what happens. We can't describe... God, 
because anything you say isn't it. <laughs> in fact, there's a tradition in Hinduism. Someone says, what is the divine? You answer. And they say, hmm, not that. <laughs> then you say something else. And they say, hmm, not that. <laughs> it is ineffable. In other words, cannot be uttered, cannot be described. Yet, the church I belonged to went to great efforts to define exactly three persons, one divine nature, transubstantiation. It goes on and on. Okay. Forgetting that these things cannot be described. Okay. This is the, uh, from a distance. This is up close. Just a few gods and goddesses. Um, When I looked at that, I said, you know, having been brought up with monotheism, and one of my friends, a Jewish friend, one time carried on about how Judaism, you know, gave monotheism to the world and how great that was. But I had been in India. And I thought, well, wait a minute, I no longer assume that monotheism, whatever that means, is the best. Why, why would I assume that? And when we have Shiva, the destroyer, if we want to say there is the divine out there, and I won't even try to explain what I think, because it's too much. Uh, that's the, Shiva, the destroyer, presumably would be one of the many faces of this greater entity, this greater consciousness. Okay. This is the Jama Masjid, which means the Friday Mosque. Friday is the special day for Muslims. And Islam means surrender. And of course, five times a day, uh, you do this surrendering. Now, when I came back to this country left everything behind in terms of church, religion. Uh, I studied to become a massage therapist. Okay? I thought of entitling this talk from monk to massage therapist. (laughs) But anyway, it was a wonderful balance to being a celibate math teacher. (laughs) Is to become a massage therapist and understand the body and work with the body. And you heard it first here, this theory I'm now going to give you. One of the reasons I think that many Muslims are so immersed in their beliefs is because of the body posture that they take this many, so many times a day, how many times a week, a year, in their 50, 60 years. It is a constant. I am down here ready to take on whatever comes to me. I have studied body movement, posture, body language uh, a lot. And I am convinced that that is part and parcel of the adherence to that religion for many people. Do I want to? Yeah. <laughs> um, that, I'm afraid that would take us a little far afield. But would you hold on to that? And when, we, when I stop this, let's come back to that kind of a question. Yes. 
Okay, so again, my mission there was for was to recruit Indian men, Catholic Indian men, to become trained as brothers and then run schools for the poor. We'll see more of that in a moment. Part of what we did was we functioned in English because government officials did, church officials functioned in English. It was the link, and it still is the link language across the country. One might think that Hindi, the uh, supposedly one of the national languages, that the people in the South, a lot of them don't know Hindi. They would prefer to speak in English rather than speak the language of the Northerners because that gives more power to the Northerners. So we studied Hindi at 6,000 feet. Each morning we got out of bed, climbed another 1,000 feet to the language school. I was 38 at the time, okay. We'd get there. And they kept saying, Dumb Lijie, Dumb Lijie. I thought, are they calling me dumb? Uh, dumb means air. It means take a breath. <laughs> okay, take a breath. This is Missouri. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Uh, in my book, one of the chapters begins with, The British did at least one thing right in India. They established... Along the craggy hills of the lower Himalayas, they established cool resorts to which they could flee during the hot season, where roses bloomed, pine trees scented the air, and pretentious clubs served scotch and soda. (laughs) This is one of those hill stations. And so we escaped the heat of Delhi. We didn't have air conditioning, and it would get up to 120. So we escaped Delhi and got to the mountains, and the bonus was there was a language school. Oh, that's just me and one of the others in the lower Himalayas. Many of the young men, I've got to watch my time. Okay, we're going to go through some of these quickly now. Many of the young men we recruited were from what was called the tribal areas, and it would be like Native American uh, areas. Uh, But they were tribal. I mean, they were educated, but they were way out there in the boonies. And one of them said, we're going to take a boat to my village. I thought he meant a boat. Well, it was this war canoe, (laughs) which someone had to keep, you know, bailing as we went across. And uh, some wonderful fine men joined us from that group. And he, the guy over there said, we're going to go across the rice paddies, the rice paddies on, on a bike. Well, if you take a look at the black arrow, you may think on the right-hand side that's a simple little path. It is, but it is the top of these walls. So it's, it's fine and dandy until you come to a right, a right turn. <laughs> After a few plunges in the paddy, I walked that bike. All right. This is uh, me and in the village, uh, a young village man who came by, and he just stared at me because there were very few Westerners that came to that part uh, of the country. And, you know, I was wearing a loose T-shirt or whatever, and he just stared where my white skin where it was exposed. And I was very uncomfortable, not used to my 
body being an object of scrutiny. Uh, and I almost wanted to touch him because I thought, his skin looks so soft. But of course I didn't because that would not be appropriate. Okay, the chaos of the Delhi streets. Moving on. All right, you see that? The top language, I think, is Tamil. The middle one you might recognize. The bottom one is Hindi. This is why people in the South, this was taken in the state where the top one is the official language. They don't know that bottom language. They prefer to speak English. The people that we recruited to join us, usually they spoke about three or four languages. I learned a little bit of Hindi, but basically I speak American. <laughs> Again, just a scene in India. Let's keep going. Um, I just love this, especially at night when the person was ironing outside in the yard and the live coals would glow in the twilight. Okay. All right. <laughs> Yeah, that's not been photoshopped. That's Buddha Air. That is one of the airlines. I, another long story, we had challenges around getting visas, so I moved headquarters to Nepal, where we could get visas for teaching English. This is the house, certainly very comfortable, but no heat. Uh, we moved to the Kathmandu in January. The Himalayas in January. Okay, no heat. <laughs> it was a challenge. Let's keep going. All right, so there's some temples and, again, public worship. These are some of the young men who joined us, and we had trainings for them. They are called novices. And community life was, of course, an important thing, So, and they loved music. And they had their tribal dances, which would look to us somewhat like Greek line dancing. Now, some of the old ways still exist. She's winnowing the grain, even though she's got a modern watch on her left hand. <laughs> she's using the old method. Now, I was there uh, when I celebrated my 25th anniversary as a brother. And again, part of the inner story is I, at this point, was having seen all that I'd seen, been thinking about this, I had a real challenge as to whether I wanted to celebrate 25 years as a brother. And then I realized, well, of course I do. <laughs> it's been cool. I compartmentalized. I was a brother. I was a dedicated brother. I loved being in community with others. And I did not buy the theology of the Catholic Church. And someone might say, well, isn't that crazy making? Well, I think it could be if it went on forever. For myself at the moment, yes, I compartmentalized. I liked this part. Uh, if you speak with the nuns, they are much more dedicated to the religious community, most of them, than the Catholic Church, which has its issues with women, to say the least. And, okay, there, that's the book... Um, let's continue. So very quickly, and then I'm going to open this up to comments and questions. Some of the things uh, that are happening today that the brothers do. They invited me back 
for the 25th anniversary of when I started it, which is amazing. Because in days of old, if you had left the group, oh no, you were the black sheep, you didn't get invited back. And it's so wonderful. They had the magnanimity to invite me back. So one of the things that the brothers do is to train young men in skills, marketable skills. Carpentry is one of them. Okay. Another one. And this kid's barefoot, but he's learning how to pound a nail. <laughs> and these guys are learning welding. These guys are learning tailoring. And when they graduate, they get one of those small um, portable thingies. <laughs> and now, it's true, 1,400 students. This is a village school. What that means is there are areas that never had education. The brothers go there, but then the kids come in from the villages. Of course, they hire other people. They don't do all the teaching themselves. And also, they hire women to work with the women, but they are supporting and organizing women to have skills. This is in India. And and while mothers are working, somebody has to be with the kids. So there it is. Okay, that is the presentation I wanted to give you. It is now 20 to 11, and I open the floor for questions, but it could simply be comments. You may want to make a comment. So thank you. Yep. Hello? Is it working? Yeah. Could see you missed the community and that you were very touched by being welcomed back. Um, what did you do in the meantime to get that community? Perfect question. <laughs> I used to say I missed several things. One was someone cooking for me, <laughs> uh, singing because that was a daily thing. And of course, the companionship of the community and ritual. It's been a bootstrap operation. I do not have an, an intense community. There are, there's a group of 10 to 15 of us who meet almost monthly. We've done it for 20 years. And every time there is a solstice or equinox, I usually lead the group in a ritual because the seasons are things that we can all relate to and our own lives as changing. So I have not found a tight-knit community, and I don't think I need that in that way at this point in my life. Question? Oh, so many questions. Let's start with the one that I asked. You were, you were showing the example of the people bending over in prayer. Yes. And reflecting on its, its effect in their lives. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm really curious about that. I'm thinking of the Buddhist uh, contemplation and meditation. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about uh, praying the Jesus prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I'm really curious. What is your value judgment about that? I find, I find it as a, I mean, personally, I find it a very positive thing in, in my life, just as my reflection on it. Thank you. Sure. Uh, 
again, I, I'm not sure I want to make a value judgment about any one of those individual forms, but I will say this. When those forms get extreme, you end up having highly devotional religious people. And I would say this, devotional religion has its place. It is something that it's difficult to engage with. And it doesn't matter what group you look at, fundamentalists in any group. It was fundamentalist Hindus who assassinated Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, way back in 1948. Fundamentalist Hindus themselves, fundamentalist Christians and Muslims. Anytime you get to this fundamentalism and high devotion, to me it's a powder keg. Someone else. Oh, oh, okay, over here, Barbara's. Okay. Oh, hey, I was just wondering, um, oh, closer, okay, um, how, when, when you provide services and education to um, the poorest of India, were many of them untouchables, and what kind of, did you receive resistance, because then we're dealing with, like, caste systems and, you know, training, training, the lower caste to do things that might not be in their caste to do, and how did you deal with that? So the services provided are provided to anybody and everybody that comes to the door. The young men you saw learning tailoring or carpentry were really what were in that city were rag pickers they were the ones that went around and picked up refuse and recycled it for a few rupees so were there untouchables in the group are there yes what I do not know the answer to the question is if they learn carpentry is anybody going to take their services because it might be out of their caste and just like racism in this country Uh, untouchability is outlawed but we know that laws don't necessarily change the hearts of men and women so yes there is that and it's still a big problem it is still a big problem hold it Um, what is your personal theology or spirituality like Oh, good question. Isn't that the title of this talk? (laughs) People have asked me that in many different ways. Thank you. Uh, One of it is, well, what have you found? And what have you replaced all this with? And I'm happy to report that the answer is nothing. Um, I don't have a need for belief in in things when I say belief now we use the word belief in so many ways I believe that Jesus is God I believe this I believe we're on the right path here in the forest (laughs) I believe in the goodness of humanity we use that word so many ways I'm talking about theological statements that have no real confirmation that can be comforting perhaps but are totally arbitrary they're all made up they're all made up and I hold none I hold none yeah is this on okay 
Um, that's jumping off a little bit uh, what you were just saying. You referred to a greater consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also said that you felt that faith is the brainwashing from childhood. If there is an intuitive sense that there is a oneness that we cannot describe to which you actually referred when you were talking about the multiple religions, what is that greater consciousness that you were referring to when you say you have no need for a belief? Yeah. Uh, I like that you use the word intuition. There is an intuitive sense, there is a leaning, and it might be wishful thinking. Do I believe in an afterlife? The wishful part of me says, yeah, that would, I kind of would like that. But here's the test for me or anybody about faith. If they say, yeah, they kind of believe that, and if they really understand belief, then if you ask them the question, could you be wrong? They will have to say, yeah, I could be. That is the test. If they do not, if they confuse religion, uh, belief with knowledge, they say, "Well, no, it says so." In blah blah blah. So yes, this is by analogy. Everything we know says, for example, that in the body, the various parts of the body actually have some level of consciousness. And you take two pieces of a heart, put them next to each other, and all of a sudden they'll start beating in sync. And uh, that's been measured. Heart math is a wonderful uh, group that's done a lot of research in that. So I'm going by analogy. Everything in the body has some level of consciousness, but it isn't necessarily consciousness of the person, which is the totality of all that. And as an analogy, it would seem to me that that's the way things are everywhere whether it's this little molecule that's made up all these parts that makes up this huge thing, I suspect that all our individual consciousness, consciousness is, uh, together form the great consciousness, which some will want to call the divine, will call it something. That is a leaning I have. And could I be absolutely wrong? Sure. Jim, this has been a wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. My question is, um, it sounded like there was a kind of a slow unraveling of the idea of faith in your particular spiritual uh, upbringing. And was there a particular day or night that you suddenly realized, I can fully enter into this broader uh, context as you were speaking the super consciousness and 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 say i can i can let go of being a brother and what what was that day or night like okay there were two instances one and i remember it i was 42 one of those change points and i remember i was taking an afternoon nap And I turned over in my bed, and in that moment, I knew I was going to leave the brothers. And often that's the way things go. Rollo May, years ago, wrote a book called The Courage to Create. One of the things he says is creativity can come, or insight can come in a second, but it has been worked on worked on, worked on, then you let it go, and then in the setting down of your coffee cup or stepping onto the bus in that moment, the insight comes. And that moment was something like that. 
Another one which I go into more in detail in the book is when I visited the shepherd's tomb in Srinagar, Kashmir. Briefly, there is a tomb that's been there for 2,000 years. It's called the shepherd's tomb. And local lore says it is Jesus' tomb. And just like the Passover plot and all those other books that say Jesus did not die on the cross, he went to where there was an exile group of Jews in Kashmir and lived out his days, fondly called the shepherd. That is supposedly his tomb. What I got out of that was not, oh, I guess Jesus didn't die. No. That would just be another belief, wouldn't it? But it came so clear to me that I didn't need to believe anything about that tomb. It could be the person called Jesus, if he existed, could be there. I don't know. Might not be there. But I cannot take the position. Yes, he is. No, he isn't. That's just more of the same. And because it was labeled, you know, Jesus' tomb, it, it stuck with me. Um, what, what caused you to come home? Was there something that occurred or was that Who's just... talking? Can I, can I, can I, oh, th- thank you. Yeah. Well, I, at one point, I mean, you were uh, clearly on a journey, clearly ensconced in your community, community there. You clearly loved that community. Yes. And then you came home. So I came home at the point where it was very clear to me that I was leaving the brotherhood, the church. I had been sitting with that for a while. And some in the, some of the brothers said, you knew you were going to leave a couple of years before you left? I said, yes. When we took vows, we took temporary vows for three or four years to see if this was right. And in my mind, I said, I'm quite sure this is right, but I'm going to stick with it for a while. I left at a point where another brother came over that I could see this is the one who's going to take my place. And my last year there, I took him around to meet all the bishops and all my contacts. I set him up to be the next in charge. And in fact, that is what happened. And that's how I felt. Now I can leave uh, this project in good hands. Um, Let's see. Do we have time for one more? Okay, one last question. Oh, dear. I can imagine you may have talked with Matthew Fox. What would your conversation be? (laughs) Matthew Fox, and I say this in the most positive way, he's priest. He is priest. That is his role. And when it didn't work out in the Catholic Church, he went to the Episcopalians. I have nothing individual I don't know that I'd say to him other than I'd want to know what he sees his role as priest is because the whole idea that there must be an intermediary between us and the divine, whatever that is, is um, does not sit well with me. And one of the images in India, you've seen pictures of this, the wandering sadhu. The lonely guy has got maybe just a loincloth on and ashes, and or he's sitting by the sacred river, uh, second sacred river, the Jamuna was about two blocks from my house. And I'd go down there and I'd see all these. They were seeking the divine directly. I wanted to do that, but not in a loincloth. And, 
had ashes. So um, I would just wonder what his, his he's so priest. I want to know, does he see himself as intermediate or does he see himself more as teacher, teacher I can roll with? Thank you so much, Jim. This was really fascinating. <laughs>